Well, good morning. It is good to see each and every one of you. If you happen to have a Bible with you, would you open it to Mark 12 today? Mark 12. For those of you visiting and not familiar with our quarterly routines around here, once a quarter, we have a family worship Sunday where many of our volunteers and children ministries, like Pastor James alluded to, get a break. And it's also good to have all the children of all ages in the services with us. And it's also a good reminder of why we worship with families of all ages. And for clarity, every Sunday we welcome, in fact, we encourage children and, of course, teenagers to be in worship at least up to kindergarten. And if your kids make some noises here and there, we get it. We've all been there, so don't worry about it. It certainly is uh, one of those things that we expect. More than once, Nancy and I uh, received kindness and patience from people in church services when our kids made noises. And if you happen to be a parent of a special needs child or adult, also know we really appreciate you taking the time and effort to get your children present also. We're very thankful for you. And as a reminder, uh, the reason Nancy and I stayed when we moved from Alaska, when I was still active duty and we arrived in the D.C. area, our heart fell in love with student ministry for access, which is for special needs children and ADDP, adults uh, with disabilities. And so we love those programs. Our kids fell in love serving there. And that was the biggest reason why we stayed with NBC. So know that you're appreciated and we love you. All over the Bible, we see men and women and children of all kinds worshiping God together. And we desire kids to see their parents and other adults engaged in biblical worship, passionate worship, sitting and taking notes and learning from God's word and learning to do the same. Certainly there are moments where young children may not understand, but we need to make sure to not underestimate what they do understand. Don't miss the teachable moments that are happening that we can talk about later. I like to call it a reverse altar call, where we serve something up for you as mom and dad, and then you can talk about it later with your own family in a way that's significant for their growth and their relationship with God. And as we pause this Sunday to give our children volunteers a break, let me also consider or really ask you to consider serving in our Kids Quest programs in the uh, early childhood development, watching children so parents can be in here. In The Rock, if you're brave enough to volunteer with teenagers, that's right, student pastor cheering there. And, uh, and believe it or not, they bite, but that's all right. That's why we get our immunizations, right? We have doctors in the house, so I feel confident we'll be able to take care of you. And then access. All of these ministries allow families to get together to serve and also to be present in worship services together. So in light of being Family Worship Sunday, allow me to bring up some brave volunteers today. Miss Caroline and Miss Emma are going to come onto the stage today. Let's give them a hand. Now, what you may not know, there's a little history here with Emma. You see, Emma's dad was the very first live Todd Talk, and I brought him up here, and it involved, there's dad, proud dad there, a live rat trap. Now, being the brave dad he is, of course, there was no trembling until I blindfolded him to receive, to retrieve a Snickers bar from that rat trap. Do you remember that, Emma? Did your dad's hand shake just a little? She, she really doesn't want to throw dad under the bus. It, it shook like this all the way down because I navigated his hand to the rat, the rat trap. And so Emma's a little nervous today, so we want to make sure that we make her feel comfortable. I told her just to be a little nervous because it's me, right? So are you ready, Emma? All right, so 
We're going to ask Emma to do something today. She's going to actually have to make a decision. And just so you don't think you're involved in this, at the end of the message today, each one of you are going to have to make a decision too. So Emma, before us today are two boxes. One is rather plain and one is a little fancy. And could you shout really loud? What does that little sign on it say? It says, pick me. It's got a pretty bow on it. And so what does your instinct tell you? Like, which box would you pick? It's bright, it's pretty, and it says, pick me, right? So I'm going to let you pick whatever box you want. But before you pick, because I'm a pastor, and I've changed since I've retired from the military, my heart's grown a little larger. No offense to you active duty personnel. Miss Caroline is my friend, and she actually knows what's in both boxes. And I'll let you ask her for her opinion first before you pick, if you like. But you're almost grown, so you can make your own decisions too, right? What would you like to do? Would you like to ask Miss Caroline or just do it on your own? You ask her? Go ahead. So she told you to pick the plain one? Well, what's in it? Let's open it. She seems happy with the contents. Maybe show, yeah. Okay, go ahead and pull one out and show them what. So in this box is Skittles and Starburst, and it's all for Emma. Let's give her a hand. Now, just so, I mean, what if, like, there's a brand new car in here? Shouldn't we at least take a look? I mean, let's just see. So in this box that says, pick me, did you choose wisely? She chose wisely. It's empty. All right. Before you leave, yeah, I know, it's, we're, we're right on that tension point. So come on closer to the light. That's symbolic too, isn't it? So Emma, do you have enough sweet things there to share? You do, don't you? So will you promise to share those sweet treats with others? All right, then you may go in peace. Let's give him a hand. All right. You're probably thinking, what does this have to do with Memorial Day weekend? It has nothing to do with Memorial Day weekend. No. You know what's interesting? I've had the privilege of studying the Word of God for a long time. And I've met people who've been blessed and guided by the Lord to actually receive the Holy Spirit and to receive that goodness. But did you realize as believers, every one of you have something very sweet to give away? Now, don't overthink the analogy with candy here. I realize it's not life-giving. It probably will kill you quicker and all that. But it's sweet, right? And you saw her eyes light up. If I would have had a banana in there, she would have been like, okay, what's the big deal? But a lot of believers are holding on to this goodness, and they're not giving it away. And that's painful for those of us who understand how precious what you have inside of you. And so today, let that just kind of be the guide. As we go through God's Word, I want you to be excited as we go on a journey and we learn about some specific questions that Jesus asks the know-it-alls back in the day. We're going to discover some answers today, 
And as promised, at the end of our time together, I'm going to ask you all some questions. So are you ready to go? All right, one of you are. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, Mark 12, we're going to start in verse 35. And this is the word of God. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And his teachings, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this family worship Sunday. Thank you for the joy children bring to our lives. And Father, I pray that your word will accomplish what you desire to do today. I pray that it will build up the body of Christ, and I pray that it will challenge those who don't know you today. And I pray, as I've been praying all week, that today would be the day of salvation for those listening that don't know you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. amen. All right. So the preceding story ended with the note from, from then not one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Not one. The wording of verse 34, particularly in the Greek, is strong and unequivocal, signifying that Jesus has prevailed over challenges from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the scribes. And after a day of questions comes the question of the day. First, it's set in the temple. And the Greek says simply temple, not temple courts. And the temple is the religious center of Israel and the seat of the Sanhedrins and their authority. Here, where policy is determined and executed, Jesus chooses to test conventional understanding of Messiahship by the larger categories of Lord and Son. Second, the question is posed to the scribes, the intellectual and religious elite of Judaism. The issue about identity that Jesus raised privately with the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8 is now raised publicly at the temple of Jerusalem. Very likely, the scribes were nervous when Jesus began to question them. The first thing I want you to see today in verses 35 through 37 is the words of wisdom from Jesus. The words of wisdom from Jesus. Now, this section of scripture belongs with the stories in chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through chapter 12, verse 37. And they conclude Jesus' teaching in the temple grounds. Note the double contrast in these stories. Jesus and his true nature as Lord versus the depravity of the scribes. And then two, the wickedness of the scribes versus the widow of a symbol of true devotion and radical discipleship, which we will learn about next week in verses 41 through 44. Now look at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Here we have a rhetorical question addressed to the leaders in the crowd. The answer is known by most Israelites. In the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant promised that the throne would be established forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. When the Davidic line ceased to rule toward the end of the divided monarchy, the covenant promise centered on the coming one who would fulfill the prophecy, labeling that messianic figure the righteous branch of David, the stump of Jesse from which a branch will come. Now verse 36. 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is a coronation psalm in the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It is quoted or alluded to 33 times. Now, remember, when we study the Bible, if something's repeated, it's important. So we want to pay special attention. If God chooses to allude to something 33 times that's already been said, we might want to pay attention. Every one of us probably had that teacher that stomped their foot in school saying, you might see this again. So let's take a look at this. Now, boys and girls, when you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, like it is in this example in Psalm 110, it's the word for Yahweh, and it is the name of God. But later we see the word Lord in lowercase letters. It's Adonai in Hebrew, which can refer to God, but can also refer to a human leader or king, and that's the case here, specifically the king of Israel. David himself must have been astonished at what he was writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Jewish people acknowledged that this was a messianic psalm. In this psalm, David heard one whom he knew to be God, inviting one whom David acknowledged to be his Lord, to come and sit with him upon his throne, the throne of God. Such a one could only be God. No one else could share God's throne. Yet this one, called to sit on high, could be none other than the Messiah, and he was to be David's son. Jesus quotes it not to deny that he's the royal Messiah, but rather to clarify that he is much more. Jesus affirms David's origins of the psalm, and Jesus stresses that David wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now verse 37. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You see, Jesus isn't rejecting his son of David's status, for he accepted it in chapter 10, verses 47 through 48. Rather, Jesus is saying that he's more than David's son. He is his Lord. This critical elevation of the status of the Messiah by Jesus. It's crucial to realize Jesus is not denying that he is the son of David. And I like how one theologian said it. Listen to this quote. It is best to say that Jesus is denying the adequacy, not the accuracy, of assessing the Messiah by means of his Davidic descent. The Lord now has everyone's attention. He himself was David's son and Israel's Messiah. His recent triumph entry had so proclaimed him. The temple records proved it, yet David, by divine inspiration, owned this his son to be his Lord, a title for deity. So then, let them answer this question. Either David was mistaken, the scripture was false, and David's son was no more than that, or he was a mere human descendant of David, or this son of David was both David's divine Lord and the Son of God. There is no middle ground. That was what the scribe who discussed the law with Jesus must decide. If he wanted to become a member of the kingdom of God, he had to take that step of faith from giving intellectual assent to truth to personal surrender to Christ. It wasn't really a question of the law, but of the Lord. What would he do with Jesus? That was the fundamental issue. Would he make the confession that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of God? Would he make the same confession that Nathaniel made? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Or that Thomas was to make when he said, my Lord and my God. He's not just the Messiah, but the son of God 
and Lord. The result is the crowd's delight and the contrast with the leaders continues as the common people recognize the truth of God and Jesus. No doubt they were delighted to see the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees put in their place. Second thing I want you to see, not only the words of wisdom from Jesus, but I want you to see the words of warning from Jesus. Verses 38 through 40. Take a look at verse 38 now. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces. In Matthew 23, the whole chapter is dedicated to Jesus tightening up the scribes. Uh, we'll see lots of different woes in there, and I encourage you to read it. But certainly there's no doubt in your mind how Jesus felt about the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 23. But in Mark, we only get three verses. Here, Jesus exposes the scribes' pride, demand for attention, and all too much like the disciples in chapter 9 and chapter 10, and then again, extreme greed that's on display. The flowing robes are either the long robes worn especially during festivals or they're expensive decorated robes of wealthy men meant to display their eminence in the community, perhaps both. This would lead people in the marketplace and on the streets to single them out for respect. So often so that if one of these men walked by with these fancy robes, people were expected to stand and acknowledge their presence. So you can see where Jesus is going with this. Verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, sitting in the synagogues and at banquets reflected status in the ancient world and often in our world too. In a synagogue, the important seats were the benches up front near the Torah scrolls and the speakers. Now, for you boys and girls, take a look at this picture of a scroll. Believe it or not, back then they didn't have a Bible. They didn't actually have a book where they could read the whole Bible at once. Instead, they had scrolls of different books of the Bible. Now, scrolls were written either on paper, and a special type of cured paper, or on animal skins. Now, my wife and I had the privilege to explore the caves of Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, back in 2014. And in the caves, they actually had these long rock tables that were hewed out, and that was where they would roll the scrolls out to, for the scribes to actually translate and write the, the same letters over and over again. In this case, Hebrew, they were going right to left. And so they would write the language and copy it down, but it's also where they would roll it out and they would put a weight down to hold it. For example, I remember the Gospel of Luke was 32 feet long. So they would unroll that whole scroll. And keep in mind also, this might even be for some of you grown-ups, they didn't have chapters and verses back then. You read the whole thing. So if you're wanting to know Scripture, you had to know Scripture. You could unroll the scroll, but you're like, uh, there was no reference point. You actually had to just roll it out and know about 16 feet down or whatever reference point you used, or you memorized it, which is what a lot of the scribes did. They had it memorized. They could actually open it up and find it. And I think that's fascinating. So that's just a little bit about the scrolls that were taking place when they're sitting in front of the synagogues, in front of these scrolls, and in front of the Torah, the books of the law. Now, when we think about all that fancy clothing, things haven't changed much today. Today, people power dress and try in all public ways to show everyone how important they are. I think Every one of us know and probably have observed someone who strutted into a room trying to get attention. And it certainly is possible that that will continue as long as people are around. Now, in reality, this breaks the central commandment to love the Lord your God, who alone deserves this kind of honor. We don't want to take away from God and the honor that he deserves. 
The Lord warns the people who are listening to all of this about the mistaken notion that such things as the best seats in the synagogue and stylish, fancy robes had anything to do with godliness. I would say, on the contrary, all too often they were a cloak for something else. Verse 40, And they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This breaks the second central commandment, to love your neighbor. Widows were the most vulnerable group in society, and they needed a lot of help. Often they trusted their dowries and other worldly goods to these community leaders, and all too often the scribes took advantage of them. There have been many suggestions about how they could have taken advantage of the widow's hospitality, defrauded her of funds entrusted to them, seized her home when she could not pay her debts, or charged her for legal advice, or what I find the most outstanding and really just sad is offering prayers on her behalf and charging her for them. We cannot say for certain since Mark does not say. Even while they are cheating widows, they do make hypocritical lengthy prayers against, again, to look pious to others. This may favor the last option above, charging for prayers. And I've certainly seen that take place overseas in Israel, people praying and charging people back in the States for them to pray. And so I know it takes place. Terrible will be the judgment of all such leaders then and now. Now I was out this past week with my family, and many of you know our, our oldest granddaughter is going through leukemia treatment. And so we stationed herself around the hospital in Florida where she's being treated, and the whole family gathered, and we had a wonderful time. But as I was preparing this message and reflecting on this text, another passage came to mind from James 3, verse 1, and it really challenges me as I stand up here before you today. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers. That's an ouch, right? My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So ministry is not something you want to just go skip off into. I will tell you, after spending uh, several decades in the SEAL teams, I didn't necessarily think that going into ministry was going to be more dangerous. But as I study scripture, I realize I'm accountable to a holy God. And that's a big deal. I want you to know your pastors take this very serious. To teach and preach the word of God uh, is very humbling. And I will tell you, I quote Spurgeon every time I preach. I love Spurgeon's prayer. He said, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's my prayer. I'm going to be as transparent as I can. I know I'm just a man, and I need all the help I can get. So when I stand up here to teach, realize this is stuff that I've already had a process, and the Lord was dealing with me long before I ever came up here to talk with you. But you want to know something that could be even more dangerous? That's to attend a church where they preach the Bible. Every week, you get to hear the Word of God. Every week, I believe God expects you to respond to His Word. So if you want to live dangerously, Continue to attend churches that preach God's word. All right, you're like, thanks a lot for that pep talk. <laughs> Our study of this text should encourage us, though, to ask a few questions for ourselves. First, what place does God's word have in our lives? Do we know it? Do we read it? Do we share it? Do we obey it? Think about it. The creator of the universe has given us his word. I think some people use it as a coaster. Isn't that sad? Like the word of God. There's life in this. And remember, we may read the Bible, but it's the only book that reads us. Let God's word do a great work in your heart. Let it change your life. 
Now, when you think about sharing it, think about the little girl and the candy. The point of that whole illustration is, for those of you that are Christ followers, you have some wonderful good news inside of you. And just like Caroline has shared it with others, and just like I'm trying to share with you, I want you to know you have this treasure inside of you, and it is so worth giving away. It is not meant to be hoarded or to be stingy with. You are to give it away. Another thing you might want to think about is, do you want the Bible to change your heart? I think that's a lot of reasons why people don't spend time in it, because God's Word is sharp, and it will do a great work in your heart, and it will reveal areas. Psalm 139, you want to talk about a powerful passage in verse 23 and 24. If you ask God to search your heart, he'll do just that. He'll search it, and he will reveal any wicked way that's not pleasing to him. And then you have a choice to make. Will you confess that sin? And will you actually start to let him do that healing work? Years ago, I was uh, doing surgery, debriding gunshot wounds, uh, you know, jack of all trades, you know, and you have to do everything in the teams. And I learned from a surgeon who taught me that if you leave just one little piece of dead tissue as you're debriding a gunshot wound, that one little piece of dead tissue will kill the person. So as we pray, we need to be serious about confessing sin and not hoarding and hanging on to that one little secret sin because it will consume you and it will destroy you. The second question is this. Why do we serve God? Do we do so for the praise of others? God help us if that is our intent. Whether we're preachers, youth workers, Bible teachers, church group leaders, or even nursery workers. Instead, May we serve God out of love for him and love for others. And then finally, there's the biggest question of all. Who do you say Christ is? That's for each and every one of you listening today. Who do you say Christ is? This same Jesus knows that he will go to the cross in three days, and he will die on behalf of every man, woman, boy, and girl who will place their faith and trust in him. Now, when I was a little boy, I was taught faith means forsaking all, I trust him, him being Jesus Christ. And I will tell you with extreme confidence, I would not count on the best five minutes I have ever lived to save me. And if you're counting on your good deeds, your money, or anything else besides Jesus Christ to save you, you are trusting in foolish things. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save you. That is good news. Now, do you know for certain that you will spend eternity in heaven with God. The Bible says you can know for sure. Year after year, day after day, when I get the opportunity to share the gospel, I point people to God's word and I remind them of this beautiful story. It's a scarlet thread from Genesis to Revelation. You see the story of Jesus. You see the story of redemption and how he came to save mankind. And this beautiful story tells us that God desires a relationship with us. Now, as a boy growing up without a dad, I find that staggering. And I will tell you, it still hurts. I'd love to strut around and say I'm this big macho guy and it didn't matter. But it does matter. And it still hurts today that I have a dad that won't talk to me. And I still look at that camera thinking, if my dad's listening, dad, Jesus loves you and he's ready to forgive you. And I mean that with all my heart. But to have God step in and replace an earthly father and to raise me, and to know that I'm loved by the creator of the universe, that's a big deal for all of you. 
You can be sons and daughters of the living God. The same God who breathed out the stars. Like lay down on the ground some night and look up at those stars. He breathed those out. He wants to know you and have a relationship with you. And the Bible also has sobering news. It tells us our sin separates us from a holy God. And that's why, again, that prayer that I pray before I preach, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I realize as a believer, we're actually called saints in here. But we don't ditch that sin nature, do we? And so that's that tension that we have our whole life. And so we need God's mercy. But I want to remind you, your sins cannot be removed by good deeds. So many people I meet say, well, you know, I, I was pretty generous. You know, I give a lot to these different organizations. So I think God will think I'm a pretty good guy. So I think I'll get to heaven that way. It's not what the Bible says. And that's why the Bible says that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place and to die in mine. And the best news of all is God didn't leave him dead. He raised him three days later. And the part that I get excited about every time is to remind you that everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can have eternal life, and they can have it today. That's that sweet little box that little girl had, right? You have that good news if you're a believer today. You can give that good news away. Think of where God has placed you today. There are men, women, and children in your life that only you can reach, and God strategically has placed you there. You don't need a preacher to go there. They have you. And so we want to be faithful with the good news, and we want to share the gospel. In his classic Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis takes us to the heart of our faith when he addresses the identity of Jesus Christ and the response we all must give. And if you don't know much about C.S. Lewis, he was a very proud atheist before he came to know to Lord. The trilemma of liar, lunatic, and Lord has become famous, and rightfully so. He explains, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. It is so clear, isn't it? Jesus is both David's son and David's savior. Jesus is both David's son and God's son. Jesus is both human and divine, and Jesus is both man and God. So now you know who he is. No sitting on the fence. You must decide for him or against him, and your accountability has never been greater. To say no now is to invite greater judgment when you stand before God and explain to him why you rejected his son. Please make sure you choose wisely. Your eternal destiny is at stake. In closing, the story I found while I was on the road. It's sobering, but I want you to hear it. On August 10, 1945, Japan acquiesced to the post-dom conference terms of unconditional surrender. The post-dom declaration stipulated the disarming of the Japanese military forces, punishment of Japanese war criminals, reduction of Japanese territory, and elimination of authority for all who led the nation in seeking world conquest. Unconditional surrender 
words included in the post-dom declaration, is surrender without conditions, in which no guarantees are given to the surrendering party. The decision to accept these terms was not reached easily, coming only after two atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The call of every Christian is full and complete surrender to the will of God. Although people often don't make this decision, yielding their will and desires to God easily, this surrender does bring some wonderful guarantees to those who are willing to do so. For example, the Lord promises peace to you. The Lord promises his strength to you. He also promises his presence with you, his joy with you. How about his help? I've received so much help from the Lord in my walk with him. And most of all, he promises a forever home with him. For every man, woman, boy, and girl who places their faith and trust in him, we get to spend eternity with him. We don't deserve it, but he's prepared that place for us. That is good news. That is what unconditional surrender that yields a more wonderful life looks like. And I pray that every heart listening today would surrender to the Lord Jesus. He loves you. He's ready for you to come home. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Earlier I said I was going to ask you some questions. And I want you to look at these three questions. And I want you to spend some time before the Lord. The first one says, what place does the Bible have in your life? This is a serious question. It's the word of God. Ask God to examine your heart and how you value his word. Then ask, why do you serve God? Or another question might be, why do you not serve God and his people? And then lastly, who do you say Christ is? Feel free to pray at the altar or in your chairs. But spend some time in prayer, and then I'll close this. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, every man and woman present today, and specifically about your word. Father, so many people are hurting today, and 
And so many people are not spending time learning from your word. So I pray that you would cultivate an appetite for us to get into your word, to learn it, to study it, to memorize it, so that we'll be more like Jesus. Father, I specifically want to pray for husbands today. Make them students of your word. So many struggle with anger. And clearly from Ephesians 4.31, there's bitterness because there's something that happened in their life. And I pray that you would create a tender heart, one that is forgiving and, and lets the past go and clings to your forgiveness, but then displays it in their home. Oh, Father, do a great work in hearts of men that are leading homes today. I believe it's one of the greatest ways to care for the wives and the moms and the children today in the church. Father, I also pray for the women in the church, that they too would be comforted by your word and challenged by it to be more and more like Jesus. Father, for those that are moms, they may be one of the closest pictures of the gospel in our lives. And so help them to love those children well. And for all the men and women in this congregation, help them to just be in your word, to love it, to read it, and again, to share it. Father, we have hope because our Savior is alive. And Father, may that hope cause us to want to serve people in the church. Oh, Father, we need an army to stand up and be ready to go to battle. And so we pray that you would do a great work on hearts there. And Father, we do pray as a church, if anyone listening today doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would stop trusting in themselves or this world, knowing just like that simple illustration that the world will leave you empty, wanting for more, and you will never be satisfied. Father, help them to realize the sweet, sweet goodness of the Savior and the life to come. Oh, Father, I pray no one would leave here today without knowing that hope. So may you do a good work in our hearts as we surrender all to you and worship you in spirit and truth. I ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, church.